Amen. Uh, hey, good morning and happy Thanksgiving again. If, if you have a Bible, uh, I'd love for you to grab that and meet me over in the book of 2 Corinthians. That's towards the back of your Bible. Uh, today I have the privilege of wrapping up this series on generosity that we called Cultivate. And, and today the way that I want to wrap this up is I want to show you the heart of generosity. Because like I said last week, there's a fine line between religious compulsion and a heart of generosity. And I, I, I'll tell you, and I want to show you today, that, that that line runs behind the motivation of our giving. So, so our primary goal, guys, just so you know, over the last three weeks, our primary goal in all of this is that God would cultivate a heart of generosity inside of all of us that, that would overflow out of our love for Jesus. That is our primary goal. Our secondary goal in all this is that you become a cheerful giver, but hear me, that don't mess that order up. What we care more about than anything is that God would begin to cultivate a heart of generosity inside of all of us as we respond to him through the love that he's already given us. The other night, um, I had the, the opportunity to putting my, my five-year-old son down for bed. By the way, that's fun to say. He turned five on Friday, so he, um, and we, we read them books every night before they go to bed, and the other night, he wanted to read about the, us going to the moon, and, and we talked about the rocket that went to the moon for the first time, and I had the, the privilege of telling him that Elon Musk not only saved Twitter, but he's bringing us back to the moon, and I explained to him, Artemis 1 is going, and, and, and we talked about the beauty of what, what's happening there, and uh, for you crazy people that believe that the moon actually happened, that we went there and that the world is round, uh, I want to tell you that, that there was this idea, this thing that happened on Apollo 11 um, that most of you don't know, most people in history don't know, is that, that when we went to the moon in 1969, there were actually three people on that rocket, on Apollo 11. Most of us know Buzz, um, most of us know Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong. We know the famous saying, one small step for man, one Right? Everybody knows that. It's been ingrained into us. And you know it so well that as I was writing my transcript, Google Docs actually auto-populated that into it because it even, everybody knows that. What you probably don't know is that there was a third person on that rocket and his name was Michael Collins. Michael Collins' only job was to Uber those two other guys up to the moon, drop them off on the lunar surface, and orbit the moon 26 times and then pick them back up. He was legit the first gig worker ever. He brought people, dropped them off, brought them back. Michael got back to Earth, and, and uh, he was interviewed of, uh, of their trip. And, and as he's going through this interview process, people wondered how he felt about this, how, how upset he would have been. And history doesn't even remember his name. And yet when he got back, Michael said he was the happiest man on the planet. And here's what he said. He said, success isn't found in being the man. It's being content with the seat that you have. Sometimes success looks like playing your role and being willing to do your part. One of the things we know is that Apollo 11 never happens if it's not for Michael Collins. See, the difference between what Michael experienced and what a lot of us experience is Michael had learned to have an attitude of gratitude. He, it was the heart behind the mission that made the mission successful. If it wasn't for Michael, you wouldn't know about Apollo 11. The same exact thing I would say is true of what I want to show you today. God cares about cultivating in all of us a heart that has an attitude of gratitude. Now today we're going to talk specifically about generosity. But let me be clear, the principle that we're going to dive into, I believe has a translation that can change your entire life. 
It has implications for everything because one thing you know is that you can't control everything in your life. You can't control your circumstances, but you can control your attitude in them, right? You may not be able to choose the seat that you have on the bus, but you can understand that God has invited you to be on the bus, and that matters. You see, the reality is for most of us, we have what I would say is an unhealthy relationship with the money that we have, and that creates conflict in our life. Like I told you last week, God doesn't want you to be divorced from your stuff. He just wants you to have a healthy relationship with it. According to Gallup, 67% of people say that they are extremely stressed out about money and they think about it regularly. They surveyed people who are divorced and among divorced people, 80% of them said that the primary reason that they got divorced was financial problems in their life. See, maybe you're wondering, why does City Church take three weeks every year to talk about generosity? Well, the reality is we talk about this every year because we understand that money in most of our lives creates conflict, instability, and fear. And what we want for all of you is to have a heart that's cultivated with an attitude of gratitude because a right understanding of your money given by God creates a tool to make a difference in the world. And if you have a bad relationship with it, can create destruction in everything that you do. So with that in mind, I want to jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what Paul says. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. All right, let me pause for a second because you're jumping into the middle of a story and I want to set the context for you, give you a little background so you can understand just how significant what is going on here. In this passage, you see that there are two churches mentioned. There's the churches of Macedonia and there's the church of Achaia. If you go and you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, it is one complete discourse on generosity. Paul is laying out his fundraising letter to the church of Corinth. What's amazing here is the undertones that are going on that you just can't see on the surface. Here's what you need to know. Of those two churches, the church of Macedonia would have been a poor Jewish church located in Jerusalem. You see this in chapter 8, verse 1. Look at what Paul says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, the other church, the church in Corinth, would have been different. We know that the church in Corinth is who he's talking about because Corinth would have been the capital city of Achaia. This church was like the Alpharetta of churches. They were super wealthy. They, they lived in the center of culture, and God had gifted them in every way. The only problem is is this was a Gentile church. Corinth would not have been the center of Jewish culture. And if you know anything about the first century world, Jewish churches and Gentile churches had a lot of dysfunction. They didn't get along. They should not have done anything with one another. But God is setting up a scenario in which this Gentile church would be able to meet the needs of their poor, struggling Jewish friends. See, there's something beautiful going on here. They aren't just meeting needs Their eagerness to be generous to the Macedonian church is building bridges and painting a picture of the gospel for the world to see. Y'all, they are tearing down walls of hate and hostility that existed in this world. By the way, what I want you to understand is, 
If you, if you were to paint a picture of anything in this world, this Jewish church would have been the church that stepped forward to help the Gentile church. They would have been the foundation of the world, and yet God chooses to do the exact opposite. God chooses to take the people that nobody would have expected, flip the script so that this, Jew, this Gentile church would begin to build the bridges of healing for this Jewish church who would have been struggling with, how do we accept these people? You know they're struggling because if you go read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, they have a whole council in Jerusalem to think about what does it look like for us to accept people that aren't like us. See, this is how God works. And you need to see the intentionality in the unexpected here. This poor church was being helped by a church that you would think it would blow your mind in the first century. It would be the equivalent of some poor church in the hood coming up here to this wealthy suburb to come help us and to be generous with us in every way. It would blow your mind. I think God does this because he wants to teach all of us a really important lesson. And, it, and here it is. You're not the hero of the story. God is. So God often takes an upside-down kingdom to display his glory because at the end of the day, the only thing you can do is worship him. Listen, don't ever take for granted the power of generosity. Okay, it's one of the most important forces on the planet to unify a hurting world. When you give your time, your talent, and your treasures to people that the world says you should have nothing in common with or interact with, what you do is you paint a picture of the gospel and you communicate to the world the value of the individuals. See, I love this statement that Paul makes at the end of verse two. He says, in your zeal has stirred up most of them. Think about it. Their coming forth in generosity has taken and broken down the walls of hostility in this Jewish Macedonian church, so much so that their zeal is creating an attitude of gratitude even in this church. These guys who are poor and they're suffering, they're struggling, they're, they're probably even struggling to let go of their religious requirements and live in the freedom of the gospel. Now they, they look and Paul says, now this free-spirited hippie church in Corinth is going to willingly give generously to their poor brothers in Jerusalem. And it's fueling the hearts of generosity in the Macedonian church. Verse three, but I'm sending, he says, the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come to me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance, this is important, for the gift that you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction. So if you go back to chapter eight, apparently the Corinthian church had made a promise a year prior to this to support this Macedonian church. And now Paul is saying, hey, I'm actually gonna send some brothers ahead to come to you in order to arrange this because there's nothing worse than if they show up and you're not ready and then you feel like you, you feel the pressure to have to do something and it becomes an exaction instead of your generosity. Notice, though, that Paul doesn't start this conversation with need because God doesn't need anything. You realize that? God's not short on money. Paul's not writing to them saying, hey, Corinthians, your Macedonian brothers can't pay their light bill, so I'm sending them and I need you to pay it. He's writing to them because God wants to use their generosity to build unity in the church and to fill their hearts with joy. And again, there would be nothing worse than showing up 
and you're not ready to do that, so now it's all out of exaction. I'm gonna show you this in a second, but the entire discourse on this generosity is designed by God to infuse blessings into both the Corinthian church and the Macedonian church. But here's what you need to know. Generosity isn't primarily about meeting needs. It's primarily about freeing your hearts to experience God's blessings. Y'all, we've all heard the stories. We've all heard the stories about a missionary that was sent out from a church. They had promised to, to like, like Hudson Taylor said, if I go and, you, and I dangle the rope, I will carry the back end of the rope. And when they promise this, and then they go off and they're forgotten and nobody ever does anything and they don't support them anymore. Right? Or, or to be real practical, some of you, some of you have bought something online on Facebook Marketplace or something, and it didn't turn out to be what you thought it was. I, I've done that. Maybe I'm the only one, but I bought these like shirts from somewhere in another country that I thought, man, that's really cool. And they showed up and they weren't really cool. Right? There's nothing worse than whenever you expect something based on somebody's generosity, and yet it doesn't happen the way that you thought it would happen. Right? When you rely on somebody and they don't come through, it hurts the relationship. Paul didn't want them to look foolish by overpromising and underdelivering. The Corinthian church, they had willingly promised to give, and Paul is like, hey, I want you to come through on that because there is a lot on the line. What you need to know is that what was not on the line was money. It never is. What was on the line is unity. See, you have to understand that when you overpromise and underdeliver, the thing that gets hurt the most is the relationship. And Paul didn't want that to happen. Here's how you know some of this. That word gift in verse five, it's the same word that actually means blessing. See, Paul, in this context, I'm gonna show you the connection in just a second. Paul wasn't worried about their finances. He was worried about their hearts. And Paul didn't want to be humiliated in the relationship that would damage God's church. So let me show it to you. Verse six, he says this. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever shows, sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That same Greek word in verse 5 is actually the same exact Greek word that is for bountifully. If you read it in the original language, here's what it literally says. Whoever shows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows blessings will also reap blessings. The point is this. There's a connection between abundant joy and generosity. As you give God tends to infuse blessings both on you and the people you're helping, and it creates a connection of unity. If there's one thing we know, it's this. God doesn't need anything. When somebody came to Jesus and asked him to pay the taxes, what does he do? He finds a coin in a fish's mouth. When 5,000 men plus their kids and family show up for a meal, Jesus takes a kid's happy meal and multiplies it to feed the entire village. God created the earth and he spoke the galaxies into existence. Y'all, God has been moving kings and kingdoms for thousands of years. His bank account isn't empty and he's not dependent upon us for anything. You have to understand there's something deeper going on when it comes to generosity and that is God is inviting the world into playing a part in his mission to expand his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's Paul's point about generosity. It's not about money, it's about blessings that come from giving. And when you become generous, some really awesome practical things happen. Number one, listen, you create unity in a divided world. See, isn't that the main point you see so far? These Jews and these Gentiles who should have had nothing in common are being united 
Their, their, their healing and their hatred are going in, in such a way because God is using this rich Gentile church to paint a picture of unity for the world. Y'all, that's what the gospel is all about. When Jesus created the church, it was always supposed to be a reflection of his love. From people from every tribe, tongue, and nation is what we see in the book of Revelation. They're going to stand around the throne room of God, and they're going to worship his great name. Paul tells us that when you come to faith, you're no longer Jew nor Gentile. You are one family created by God. You see, when the church acts like the church, we create a picture. We create a picture for the world of what it's supposed to be like. It tears down the walls of hostility. And I've told you before, God is after unity, not uniformity. And, and he uses this countercultural measure of generosity to create this in his people. So let me just ask you, what are we known for? Not, not what do you think we're known for, but as you think about the world and the people around you, what are we known for? You know, Vincent van Gogh, he created this famous picture one time, this painting called The Starry Night. I'm sure you, you've all seen this before. In the starry night, Van Gogh wanted to use light or yellow to illustrate God's glory and his presence in the world. So you'll notice that he put light in the sky. He put it everywhere because he would say God's glory and his presence is everywhere. If you actually look on every house, there's, there's yellow to depict God's presence in the world. There's one place in this picture that Van Gogh would say that you would not find God's light. The church. Y'all, Van Gogh said that you could find God everywhere except for where he was supposed to be found. I've told you this a million times. The greatest threat on the church is not out there. It's in here. It's our disunity. It's our inability to be generous and kind with one another that creates divisions and disunity in the world. And it communicates to the world who is looking for a picture of unity that can't be found in the world. It communicates it's not here. See, one of the ways, one of the ways that we bring the light back into the church is that we take our resources that God has given us and we bless the people around us. We take our seat on the bus. No matter where your seat is and you care more about blessing others than you do about blessing yourself. I've told you this before, but it seems as if the church has created this dividing line between the secular and the sacred, like I'm varsity level and you're not. If you buy into that lie, you miss the entire point. God is using all of his people in their individual spheres of life to intersect your life with the things you're already doing and do it with gospel intentionality. And when you do that, you create this beautiful ecosystem called the church and it changes the world around you. See, it fuels the mission of what God wants to do because the reality is the world is so divided. We're divided politically. We're divided morally. I mean, we're hurting so badly that you're starting to see things like attacks in nightclubs, shootings at schools, shootings on UVA's campus, riots going on everywhere, and everything in the world is pitting us against one another because you have to pick a side, and when you pick a side, you attach yourself to it, and then you find everybody else wrong because you demonize them. But in the church, the church was always meant to be a signpost for a better kingdom, that, that we put our gaze on Jesus and we find that we are for something so much more than we are against it, which because we have a horizon in Christ and in the gospel, we're able to love people well and accept people in ways that the world can't. We paint a picture of the gospel to a world that is looking for unity whenever we show them that we're unified around the gospel. We're people from every background, Every tribe, tongue, and nation come. It doesn't really matter what your skin color is or what country you are from. You are painting a picture by putting light back in the church 
when you become generous people. Number two, you feel generosity in others. Did you notice again, he talked about their zeal. Their zeal created a zeal in the Macedonian church. Y'all, generosity is contagious. You know, psychology today, it says this, that generosity creates a ripple effect in the people around you to make them more generous and happy. Psychology today, it goes on to say this, that as we create this ripple effect, you actually, by your generosity, have the ability to change the outlook on somebody else's life for the long term by how you love them. Cal Berkeley, that famous Christian institution in Berkeley, California, here's what they said. The science of generosity actually shows that when you become generous, you live longer, you're more satisfied in your jobs, and you're relationally healthier. Y'all, the more generous you become, the more generous the people around you become. So if you can get real practical, if you want to change the world, become generous. Because it creates a generosity cycle in the people around you. Think about it. Like when you're at Starbucks and you're in the drive-thru and you buy your $11 latte, and I know some of you are like, you normally say $8. Yeah, inflation, so you're welcome. All right, thank you, Papa Joe. You buy your drink and you come up to the line to pay for it and somebody buys your latte for you, what do you naturally do? Well, if you're not Scrooge and you take your latte and go home, you normally buy the latte for the person behind you. And then you're happy. And the reality is, is it costs you the same amount. But the generosity of the person in front of you has fueled a generosity inside of you that has not only impacted your life, but it's impacted the people around you. When you cultivate generosity, it has a multiplying effect on the world. Number three is this. You're blessed. Y'all, if, uh, if you actually look at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the main thrust of the entire passage is this, that God wants you to be generous because as you cultivate generosity, he unleashes his blessings in your life. You become more joyful and happy. Look at verse 7. Each one, Paul says, must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. That word there, for God loves a cheerful giver, is the word hilaros in Greek, which is where we get the word hilarious from. It's fascinating that Paul would use this. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that God loves when you smile and you laugh when you give, that there's a joy in your giving. How do you know that? Because in the context, Paul's not worried about the, the dollar amount. He says, each one of you should give as you've decided in your own heart, or else it will become religious compulsion, that is reluctant giving. And yet, God doesn't want you to give that way. I've told you this before. As we talk about giving here at City Church, listen, if, if you've been hurt by giving, by these talks, and you're like, gosh, I brought my friend here today, and I feel like I always bring them on the day that they talk about money. They just want my money. Here's, here's, here's what I want to tell you. Don't give your money here, because God doesn't want you to give reluctantly or out of compulsion. So I just want to free you up with that. There's something deeper going on here, and it's generosity. How do you know that? Look at verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. You are blessed when you understand this principle. God will provide everything you need to meet the needs that he has put on your heart to meet. Now here's the thing. And this is super important. God unleashes his blessings on your life as you give. Think, think about it. Feeding of 5,000. 
famous parable. So they're all in this countryside. There's about 20,000 people that show up, and the disciples are perplexed. They're like, Jesus, you got to send them all home. Like, we don't have any food to feed them. Jesus looks at a little boy with his lunchbox, and he says, hey, I want you to take the two loaves and the fish, and I want you to start giving them out. Now, watch this. God didn't multiply those blessings before they gave them out. The disciples had to take a faith step in order to start passing them out. And as they did it, there's this miraculous blessing that comes about as they do it. God unleashes his blessings as they, as they trust him. And, and this, is, this is the principle here. God's provisions are unleashed in your life as you trust him to provide. There seems to be some of which our reluctancy is, God, I'm not going to be generous with you because I don't know if you're going to provide. Or I'll give you my leftovers. And God's like, if you would just trust me, what I will do is I will release you from the bondage of your stuff and I will meet the needs that I put in front of you. There's a freedom in hilarious giving and cheerful giving. And, and, and the freedom is, is that you know deep within your soul that God is going to provide everything you need. I've said this before. I've said it every week. God doesn't want generosity from you. He wants it for you. He wants you to be blessed and to live a cheerful life. So he will give because what he has is in all sufficiency at all times. He will give whatever you need to make all grace abound for every good work that he has given you. I mean, this is at the heart of the gospel. The most famous passage in the entire Bible, the one that you see at like every football game, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave. You see the generosity in God is what, what fuels us to be more generous. Like he's already given you his most prized possession. He gave you his one and only son to demonstrate his love for you. He has lavished his love upon all of us by giving us his son. How can you not trust him to provide for you all good things? He says he's a good father that wants to bless his kids richly. I don't think the problem is that God is running out of resources. I think the problem is, is we tend to struggle to trust that he will provide for what we need. Now, the greatest demonstration of God's love was his generosity on you. And the greatest demonstration of your love on this world is your generosity towards others. See, too many of us are worried about what we have to give, and I think Paul wants to flip this on his head, and he wants you to realize what God wants you to gain. Here's how it works. Verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Hey, I want you to take note of a couple of things. The first one is this. In verse 11, when Paul says you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, he's talking about financial blessings. Again, I want to be careful here because I know, I know this has been abuse. By the way, I think it gets abused on both sides. And the, the prosperity gospel says, like, it's this quid pro quo. If you just give, God's going to heal you and bless you. And because you don't give, you, you don't receive. That's, that's not true. It's more complex than that. But also, on this side, what we call is the poverty gospel. Like, God just wants you to be poor, bankrupt, and unhappy for the rest of your life, like a curmudgeon. That's not true either. There's something to live in the tension of the balance. God's financial blessings that Paul is talking about are meant to be unleashed through you, back into the world to bless the world. We call this stewardship. Stewardship. Stewardship is the idea that, and, and, and this changes everything in your life, that you're not the owner of anything. You're a manager of what God has given you. The principle is of farming, right? In agrarian societies, 
back in antiquity, what they understood was two important principles were at work at the same time. The first principle was this. A farmer had to work really, really hard. They had to get up in the morning. They had to cultivate the ground. They took the resources that they had, and they worked hard. I think one of the imbalances that we have in our society is, no, God cares about how you work. He cares about the stewardship of the things that he has entrusted to you, so they had to multiply that. Listen, you're working hard matters. But at the same time, farmers understood a great principle is that it didn't really matter how hard they worked. If the rain didn't come or the soil wasn't good, the harvest wasn't coming. That there is a tension in which we have to work hard and God has to provide. Stewardship works the same way. God has entrusted all of us with resources that he wants us to put back into the harvest. See, money is like a seed. Money is like a seed that you plant into the harvest. And what you have to do is as you plant this back in the harvest, you work hard. Don't take that for granted. But at the same time, as you do that, God multiplies that. And what ends up happening as you entrust that back to him is he infuses you with blessings and righteousness that ultimately leads to a more worshipful life. See, none, none of those blessings happen because they didn't work hard. But they also don't happen because you did everything to earn them. They happen because God wants to unleash his blessings on you as you sow back into this harvest of God's righteousness. Here, here's what we do, right? We don't think ourselves into a new way of acting. We act ourselves into a new way of thinking. And God uses that as we trust him through the process to bring a balance into our life that makes us rely on him and it changes our heart in the meantime. See, don't miss the point. God has never been after our money. He's after our hearts. And that's why generosity matters so much. Here's the next thing I want you to see. It's in verse 10. He says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Let me be captain obvious here. Who provides the seed? God. You see that, right? But don't miss the important thing here. There's really one of two things that you can do with the seed. You, you can eat it. And if you eat the seed, it provides for you and your family, but the blessings stop there. Or you can plant the seed, and it multiplies, and, and it feeds the entire village. You know, there's a story of Oklahoma farmers in the 1930s that goes like this. In 1939, uh, there was a group of farmers who, who faced an excruciating choice. They, they, they were either going to trust God with the remainder of their seed, or they were going to feed their families. See, here was the dilemma. In the 1920s, many of these farmers, they had moved from their low-paying jobs in the Midwest at a chance for a fortune at the great American Midwest. Now, for a couple years, their farming went really well. But in 1931, Oklahoma went through the worst drought in recorded history. To make matters worse, their sloppy farming techniques had ruined the grass that preserved the moisture. So the result was these massive dust storms. And as these massive dust storms were coming, their fortunes were literally disappearing in these dull, dry plums of dust. But in 1939, many of these farmers, they, they had come to the end of themselves. They'd run out of feed, and they, had, they only had a few months left, and they had, to come, they had to come with a choice. Do they eat the remainder of their seed and feed their families and then move back east, or do they wait for the rain? Some of them left. Some of them took what they had remaining, and they planted it. If the rain came, they would have a hundredfold. If it didn't, well, they'd be left with nothing. As they planted the seed, thankfully, in the fall of 1939, the rain did come, and those who stayed reaped a harvest. 
Here's what I want you to know. Generosity is incredibly difficult. Like, I, I don't want you to hear that it's as easy as just making a choice. No, for these people, it was life and death, and for some of you, it is too. For some of you, you are living at the margins, and it seems as if the rain's never going to come. But the reality is, is if you read this text properly, God will provide everything that you need for your seeds for sowing. And the heart of generosity leads to a life of joy. See, God's not really worried about what you do with the little bit of resources to make an impact. God's worried about your heart. Now watch this. These blessings, these blessings, they aren't primarily material. See, as you cultivate a life of generosity, what Paul says is you receive a righteousness that leads to verse 11, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. The reason that this is true is because godly generosity is a response to the gospel. And as you give, as you respond to the generosity of God who gave of himself freely, it begins to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving to God both in you and the people around you. Verse 12, listen to what he says. For the ministry of the service, by the way, if you underline or circle words in your Bible, that word service is super important. It's the word that we get liturgy from. Paul's actually saying that their generosity, he's using a play on words to say the ministry of your liturgy or of your worship, your generosity creates worship. So he says, he says the ministry of your service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, and I love this, he doesn't say the wants, because God doesn't always give you everything you want, but he does give you everything you need but it is also overflowing in many thanksgiving to God. By their approval of this service, he's talking about the Macedonian church, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see the power of that? And the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. See, the primary motivation of their generosity was their submission that comes from their confession of the gospel. It was worship. And the order of this is massively important. They weren't giving to please God. They were giving out of an overflow of their worship that they already had. Here's what we all know intuitively. We eventually become like the things that we worship, and God wants to free you from that trap. You've heard it said. You become like the five closest friends that you have. You become like what you worship. N.T. Wright, the great scholar, he says you become like what you worship when you gaze in awe admiration and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Real generosity. Real generosity starts when we understand the generosity of God. See, it's all about worship. Listen, your generosity is an opportunity to worship and glorify God, and that's what it's all about. Like I said earlier, there's a fine line between religious compulsion and generosity, and the line there is your heart. Think, think about it. Think about your understanding of the gospel. Right after Adam and Eve, in the very beginning of the Bible, right after they had sinned, the very first thing God did was kill an animal and clothe them. Martin Luther called this the proto-euangelion. Proto meaning first. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel. It's the very first time that we see the generosity of God. When Adam and Eve should have been kicked out and they should, in their nakedness and their shame, God clothed them so that he could give them another chance to see his goodness and love. When the nation of Israel found themselves in slavery because of their own mistakes, 
God rescued them out of the hands of Pharaoh, and he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey. When it seemed like there was no hope, if you didn't know this, the very last pages of your Old Testament to the very first pages of the book of Matthew, there's 400 years of silence. When it seemed like there was no hope, God broke forth though in, in words that said, I will no longer chase after you, but I will put on flesh. I will live your perfect life in your place. I will die your death in order to give you new life. Isaiah says that Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was punished for our sins, and he was brought to the slaughter to bring us peace. John tells us that he is going to come back riding on a white horse to do, uh, to do war against the evil that has brought us so much distraction and pain in this world. And one day, Jesus is going to wipe every tear from your eyes and make you perfect and unified again. Paul says that he did this in Romans 5 eight, while you and I were yet sinners, which means that he didn't wait for you to be good enough to die in your place, but he did it to give you his love. The psalmist tells you that, you that he knew you in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every secret thing about you, and yet he still loves you. And Paul, in the crescendo of this message in chapter 8, says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich rich. In chapters 8 and chapter 9, you see that word charis, which is the Greek word for grace, talked about eight times because he wants you to know that your generosity has nothing to do with you earning God's approval, but it is all a grace that is given as you worship King Jesus. Listen to me. God has gifted you in every way, and he wants to bless you in every way. But the difference between religious compulsion and generosity is what you understand about the gospel. Martin Luther said every Christian should understand this, and every Christian should wake up every day and say, Lord, Lord, you are my goodness, and I am your punishment. You took what I deserved, and I got what you deserved. Lord, you have given me your righteousness. You have given me your power for the present. You have given me a hope for the future, and I will rule, and I will reign forever with you, so that it just makes sense that all that I have is yours. Our generosity is first and foremost a response to the gospel, or else it will become religious compulsion. Now notice, notice he said first, it is dictated by your vertical relationship with Jesus. And then the overflow of that relationship has a horizontal impact on the world. Verse 13, by their approval of this service, Paul says, they, the Macedonian church, will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. You see, everything in the world told them that they should be divided. And yet, Paul says, by your sacrificial generosity, they long for you. They pray for you. They glorify God because of you. Think about it. These churches should have had nothing in common. They should have despised each other, and yet they are relationally connected because of their generosity. Don't miss how powerful generosity can be to the world around you. It's so powerful that this word right here, inexpressible, it's the very first time in the entire Greek language that this word, Paul makes up a word. It doesn't exist. It's so powerful that Paul has to make up a word to express just how inexpressible it is that we would be generous towards one another and how powerful it is whenever you do it. Y'all, cultivating generosity is not about money. It's about your heart. 
It's about coming under the gospel and allowing the Lord to reorient your mind to knowing the generosity of Jesus. And as you do that, it has the power to unify with the world around you. That's why, that's why God loves a cheerful or hilarious giver. Because your giving can change people around you. See, it doesn't really matter if you have a lot or a little. What matters is that you're stewarding the resources that God has entrusted to you back into the harvest and allowing the Lord to write his story through you. If you can cultivate a life of generosity, what it does is it creates an attitude of gratitude in you because you realize, you change your framework that every single thing you have is yours because God has given it to you anyway. Like when you get paid, I know we don't get physical paychecks anymore, but when your direct deposit comes through, if you can sit there for just a moment and say, God, thank you, because everything that I have, you've given to me. Yes, I've worked hard, but the reality is you gave me the ability to work. You positioned me in a place to do it. And what I want to do as, a, as an act of generosity is I want to take what I have and I want to steward it for your glory. What ends up happening is God releases you from this to this. And as your hands are open, he tends to fill you with more joy than you've ever had. And, and he changes the people around you. See, this vertical relationship that we have with God should have a horizontal impact on the world around us. See, we believe, we believe that God has called us to be generous givers because everything we have is already a gift from him anyway. And he wants to leverage you to change the world. That's the point. Generosity is not about church dues or budgets. It's about your heart. God wants your heart. He wants you to respond to the generosity that you have in Jesus and go make a difference in the world and worship him as you do it. Guys, here's what I know. Unimplemented changes become regrets. We can talk all day long about what we want to see. This is why New Year's resolutions never work and you're just stuck with a gym bill that you never use because unimplemented changes become regrets. God wants you to have an attitude of gratitude and a heart of generosity cultivated in everything that you do so that you can experience a joy that allows you to have a proper relationship with everything he's given you. I love the way Abraham Kuyper said it. He says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The reality is, it's all God's anyway. It's all God's anyway. He gave it. He wants you to use it. He wants you to have a proper relationship with it because what we know, what we know is most of us struggle to have a proper relationship with our finances. See, as we wrap up this entire series, what I want you to know is nobody in this room that calls City Church their home cares about dollars. We care about our heart. What God wants more from you than anything is freedom. A freedom to have joy. A freedom to respond to change the world. That's why we're named City Church, if you didn't know that. If you didn't know, City Church comes out of Jeremiah 29 where we believe that God has gifted all of us to change the flourishing of this world as he unleashes you back into it. That's why we end all of our services by saying, City Church, you are sent. See, God wants you to belong and he wants you to live sent. And all that has to start with our vertical relationship of worship. City Church, what if today was the day that you committed just in being generous back to God? Now, we're not gonna do like 
We don't have a commitment card. We don't, we're not going to call for an offering. Like, that's between you and God. What I want you to do for just a moment is just ask God. God, what do you want me to do with my time, my talent, my treasures that you have given me to steward for your kingdom? Where am I not trusting you? And Lord, as you've called me to do it, I know that you will supply every seed for the sowing. And you're all sufficient in all ways to make me abound in every good work. Where do I need to start doing? And start cultivating a life of generosity from there.